Well, lots of calls that we didn't get to in that last segment talking about the U.S. election. Fear not, we will have more time to take your calls a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, we want to check in with Democrats abroad Vancouver and board member Camille Mitchell is on the line with us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, Jill, if I can just if I can just um, ask any viewers who are Americans living abroad to please make sure their vote has been received by their state by going to votefromabroad.org slash states. It would mean so much to this election. We are asking all members of Democrats abroad, as well as all voters voting absentee, to please double check their vote has been received and counted. And the best place to do that is votefromabroad.org slash states. Thank you. What can they do if they check there and find out that their vote wasn't received? Then uh, the best thing to do is on that same website, which is an awesome kind of one-stop shop website, they can go to and find their election officers and make contact directly with their county's election officers to make sure and find out how, in that case too, they can also in some cases fax in a ballot. Uh, There are some extended deadlines, for example, uh, North Carolina, even though Ballots uh, have to be postmarked by November 3rd, yesterday. They're still counting them until November 12th. So uh, there is all the information on that website. And if they contact their election officials through Vote From Abroad, uh, they can get a lot of answers. Uh, And while that's happening and the counting is continuing, what is your take and your response having watched uh, what happened last night and the uncertainty today? I'm so excited, Jill. I, you know, right now the Biden team is expecting to reach the 270 electoral college, uh, college votes this afternoon through Wisconsin, Nevada, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. We know that there are going to be recounts. There will be legal fights because we know that the um, Republican Party is not going to accept anything but a win for Donald Trump. But we're very confident that uh, that these. Uh, that he, that Joe Biden will be our next president. Uh, And how are you that confident, particularly looking at what's happening with the numbers in Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania is an interesting prospect because it's really a commonwealth. It's it's a really unusual state because in, in this election, we're actually looking at 50 individual state elections, which all combined become one federal election. So every state has all these different laws, all these different deadlines. Pennsylvania being one of them, it's called a commonwealth, which means every county has got different restrictions on it. The reason I'm so confident is because the wave of votes that are now being counted are coming from overseas ballots. They're coming from absentee ballots. They're coming from people who have gone to vote from abroad.org and voted overseas. They've come from, we have had since 2016, we have had three times the global traffic We have 6.5 million eligible voters living all over the world. And they have this year really come out in spades. They've come out three times more than what we had in terms of voting traffic from 2016. And even though, you know, this was, you know, I'm sure you and your listeners have heard about the Red Mirage. The Red Mirage was the idea that most Trump voters voted in person. Most absentee ballots, which tend to lean more heavily toward Democrat, have come in by mail. And it's the mail-in ballots that always get counted last. That's why we're so confident, because we believe through questionnaires with our 
uh, Democrats abroad members, we've discovered that millions, there are millions of absentee votes coming in this year, much higher than 2016, and they have yet to be counted. That's why we're so excited and we're so definite that every vote must be counted. And I get that, and I understand the excitement and what's happening right now. But does it also, if you look back, is it also a reflection of going into the vote? There were also a lot of people that were confident that Joe Biden had a clear lead and that there would be enough to make a call last night. If we look back at the campaign, is that a failing on the Democrats' part? No. I, I See, part of the problem has been the way... Uh, the, uh, President Trump has addressed the mail-in system in the United States. As you know, he took mailboxes away and he gave a lot of people, uh, you know, there was a lot of, of, of controversy about this. There was a lot of hesitancy. And part of the problem has been that um, the gerrymandering that's been going on in Republican states as well. So in truth, even though, yeah, we were hoping that Florida would, would go blue and it, it didn't, But there's so many other ways to go with this, thank goodness, in terms of the electoral colleges. And Biden is ahead by at least four million uh, popular votes right now, which is above Hillary and is also um, we still have millions more votes to count. So even though it wasn't as quick as we all would have loved, because we've been going through this for a year and a half now, the truth is, is that it is moving. And it's the, the beauty of this is, thank goodness for all those people who stood in line in the states. Thank goodness for all the people who have taken the time to vote from overseas. It is making such a difference. And this is democracy at work, which is, you know, a pretty miraculous thing. It's also, though, and many people have pointed this out, that that even if it does go that way, and it is looking like Joe Biden will be the next president, he is then going to be the president of what is clearly a very divided country. It, it, it The fact that we are still watching these, these counts take place, uh, there have been some tense moments at some of the counting stations, there are threats by Donald Trump of a lawsuit demanding recounts. It's extremely divided. So how does a Joe Biden president, in your mind, as a Democrat, how does he begin that job of reuniting the country? Well, I think a big part of this division has been misinformation. And I'm very hopeful that with the Biden presidency, that will be corrected because a lot of misinformation under the Trump administration has been actually perpetrated by the president himself. And that has led to this huge chasms in division. I'm sure you found in talking to to pe- some people who tend to lean towards Republican, you know, their their version of the facts is very different from the version of the facts by uh, the um, the Democrats and also by the, um, you know, very reputable press. So I think that'll be a huge part is when finally we are all reading, you know, reading off the same page. That will make a huge difference. And he has said, too, I'm um, sorry, no, he has said, too, unlike Trump, that he will be the president for all Americans, which is exactly what Obama had promised and which is what Obama did during his eight years. And fortunately, Biden has the experience and he has the skills and he has everything that we need to right this ship. You know, I, I, I've often felt that this is a ship that is in such bad trouble 
that we need a skilled skipper. It can't be a flashy. It can't be a personality. It has to be someone who really knows what they're doing. And thank goodness Joe Biden is that man. What about the challenges, though, with uh, the Democrats had wanted to make much bigger gains in the Senate? What about the challenges of actually making changes and moving forward with that makeup? Well, I'm, I'm really hopeful. It looks like now, the last time I checked, we're, we were tied in the Senate, which, as you know, is an important uh, lawmaking um, part of the Congress. Um, it looks like the House is we're still ahead in the House. So I think as long as we can maintain uh, those leads, it's going to be a lot easier to 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 make sure these these, you know, the laws and the legalities of all this uh, are moving in the right direction. All right. Well, Camille, we are going to continue watching and, and providing the updates as they come in. Uh, I know you'll be watching as well. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you so much. And Jill, if, if your viewers could go to votefromabroad.org and make sure their votes have been counted and sign up and vote in our, all our elections from here on in, that would be fantastic. But as you likely know, ballot counting in the 2020 U.S. presidential election continued last night. It is continuing today. We've already heard from Donald Trump in one case demanding a recount in another threatening to launch a legal challenge of the vote results. This, as many of the ballots are still being counted. So what does this mean for the system as a whole when we look at how things are done in the United States? Well, Stuart Prest is an SFU political science lecturer and has agreed to join us to talk a little bit more on his take on this. Stuart, thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's my pleasure. What is your take on the fact that I know uh, there is still so much unknown votes being counted? What does how things unfolded last night and continue to unfold today, what does it say about the system in the United States? Well, the system is, in some ways, it's not one system, right? It's 50 different systems, and we're seeing fresh evidence of that, where the ballots counting in the different states, each state gets to set their own rules by which they uh, uh, conduct their elections, including the election for the president. And and it just makes for a uh, somewhat unpredictable system. And uh, so some some states are able to, to calc- cal- calculate the results fairly quickly and others are, are, are moving much more slowly. And then adding to that fact is that we see in some states that the, the very uh, processes by which ballots are being counted are su- subject to political contestation where uh, the, the two parties are, are contesting over when to count the ballots and, and how fast to do it and so on. And so it, it is a remarkably complex and, and some, somewhat of a messy process. Uh, and does it add to it that we see some states where they're allowing ballots to come in by mail, they allow them uh, to come in after the election date, as long as they're postmarked before others have a hard stop, they don't allow? It seems to be a bit of a patchwork. It, it absolutely is a patchwork. And uh, all states are, are trying to find ways to, to make for a uh, a fair election. But uh, as we can see, that there there's no one set of guidelines that uh, allow for a uh, uh, a, a, a single line to, to be followed throughout the, the, the 50 states. And, and so it's, uh, it, it's just another wrinkle here, and it is one that uh, we are also seeing the, the president uh, essentially attempt to exploit for political advantage, which is adding another uh, bit of uh, unpredictability to the situation. Uh, is it more so because of what uh, the situation was this year with so many mail-in ballots uh, that, compared to previous years, or do you think is it the electoral college system itself? Well, it's, there's no doubt that uh, the, the pandemic has added to this uh, uh, complexity where uh, many more 
citizens were were uncomfortable with showing up for the the polling uh, directly. And uh, there is also the fact that uh, it works for the the parties. At least the Democratic Party has embraced the idea of mail-in voting as a way to enhance their get-out-the-vote efforts. So there was a a real uh, embrace of this strategy uh, on one side of the political divide. And so that's an additional wrinkle. And of course, the Electoral College and the the way in which votes tend to, uh, in most states, be assigned in terms of whoever wins the, the majority vote within that state gets the entirety of the Electoral College votes. That adds another layer of uh, unpredictability and uh, potential, uh, uh, well, you wouldn't say uh, undemocratic, everyone agrees to the rules, but but it, it, it can lead to these outcomes that we've seen where the popular vote does not equate to the, the presidential vote. And when we look at what's happening with it being so close, are there any surprises there? I know a lot of people are talking about the polls saying once again, they feel kind of let down by the numbers and what they were being told leading into the vote. But what is your take on how close the vote is, particularly in some states? Well, it does seem like uh, we were uh, expecting perhaps a little more of a comfortable win for for Joe Biden. But at the same time, he does have a comfortable lead in the uh, in the, the popular vote for the country as a whole, it's really just the the distribution of the vote of uh, the vote in those key states like uh, like Wisconsin, like Georgia, which we see are just coming down to the wire. And so, it, it reflects the fact that this is a, a deeply divided country, and those who support uh, Donald Trump support him uh, a lot. And uh, and nothing that has happened in the last four years seems like it has shaken that that support among those core supporters. And so, it is a reflection of the fact that. Uh, This country has in some ways not changed much in the last four years, despite all that has happened. And the polling might have uh, missed it a a few points here or there. But by and large, it reflects that that the division and the the fact that the votes are being counted in this very particular American way. And uh, just wanted to quickly touch as well on U.S.-Canada relations. How does it change Canada if we see either another four years of Donald Trump or we see the presidency go to Joe Biden? Well, it's pretty Clear. I think it's safe to say that uh, most Canadians would prefer to see Joe Biden in office. Uh, that there is a, a strong support for for more democratic politics in Canada, and so I think there'd be a comfort level with seeing uh, a Biden, Biden in the in the uh, uh, the Oval Office, but. Uh, at the same time, the the relationship, as we've seen over the last four years, will continue on and with uh, with uh, President Trump. Another four years of President Trump, we might see a, a more unpredictability in that relationship, but. Uh, it's clear that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau and uh, Mr. O'Toole are committed to working with whoever wins the election, and they've been pretty uh, adamant on that point. All right. Uh, Stuart, I know busy day for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, aside from voting for representatives yesterday in the U.S. election, there were about 120 proposed state laws and constitutional amendments that were on the ballot in 32 states, and a lot of these having to do with drug measures, many things that people were voting about. And in Oregon, it became the first state to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of so-called street drugs, talking about things like methamphetamine, cocaine and heroin. It's something very similar to what has been called for on this side of the border here in BC and other parts of the country as well. So right now we are checking in with Ronan Levy, who is the executive chairman and director of Field Trip. Ronan, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, It's my pleasure. Uh, For people that aren't familiar with Field Trip, what is it? 
Field Trip is an integrated psychedelics company that's focused on both uh, developing new psychedelic mole- molecules for therapeutic use, as well as uh, administering and delivering psychedelic therapies. Right now in Canada and the U.S., uh, ketamine, which is a dissociative psychedelic, is actually legally prescribed and can be used for mental health treatments. And so that's what we're doing. But certainly we anticipate and expect that other psychedelics will get legalized and approved much like we saw happen with psilocybin in the state of Oregon yesterday. And so what is your response to what has been changed or what will change now moving forward in Oregon? Yeah, so we should clarify that two things happened in Oregon yesterday. They did decriminalize possession of psychedelic drugs, in fact, a a wide variety of of, uh, once illicit narcotics. Uh, But they also approved something called Measure 109, which sets the framework to establish a legal program for psilocybin therapies, such that doctors and therapists can provide psilocybin uh, in a controlled therapeutic environment to take people on uh, psychedelic experiences for therapeutic purposes in the state of Oregon. And we think this is a, a big step forward because the evidence around psychedelics and psilocybin in particular is showing profoundly positive uh, effects for the treatment of mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, uh, but also has incredible pro-social side effects um, for people who don't necessarily have mental health challenges, such as increased creativity, increased empathy. Uh, and certainly these days, uh, at least when it comes to politics, it, this, one of the side effects of psychedelic therapies has also been shown to be uh, openness and tolerance to other people's viewpoints. So there's a lot of really positive things that can come from a thoughtful, well-designed, therapeutic psychedelic program as was approved in Oregon yesterday. Uh, You use the words thoughtful and well-designed, which seemed like very important words when discussing this or describing this, because is there also, though, a potential or a danger if these aren't used correctly? Certainly. Uh, I mean, all drugs are uh, have risk of misuse and, and negative impacts. Generally speaking, what many of us probably learned in school about psychedelics was probably overstated. By and large, psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD are relatively safe. It's in, almost impossible to overdose on them. Uh, they're non-addictive and, in fact, maybe anti-addictive uh, in helping people get off other addictions. But there are still risks that experiences can be negative. Generally, it's thought that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se, uh, that there are only hard trips and easy trips. And a hard trip with the right therapeutic support can still be incredibly uh, positive and, and therapeutic. Um, but if you don't have the right therapeutic support around that experience, it can create its own instance of PTSD. So they are not harmless molecules by any stretch, but uh, the the harm profile around uh, most psychedelics is actually much lower than most people anticipate. Uh, we talk so much about the legalization of marijuana or the decriminalization of marijuana in some areas as well. Why is it, do you think, it seems to be that there's more of an acceptance of that rather than these types of more uh, the, the psychedelic drugs? I'm not sure it actually 
actually agree with that. I, I think it's just a function of time that cannabis was a focus of decriminalization and legalization efforts for a long time. And we're generally seen, it's still generally seen as relatively low harm. Um, but what's happening now is the, the psychedelic renaissance that, that we're in the midst of is really being driven by science and research. Cannabis was driven by grassroots political efforts, which were, I think, very valid and worthwhile. But here, it's really the science. It's the science coming out of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, out of New York University, out of Imperial College in London, that's showing the efficacy of psychedelics and showing their safety that's really pushing this movement right now. And so uh, I think the acceptance of psychedelic therapies is going to happen much faster uh, and be embraced much more quickly by the medical community. It's just starting, though. It just hasn't had as much time to really go as mainstream. And I think what we saw happen in Oregon yesterday is really going to advance that dialogue. How quickly do you think things will change? Uh, they're changing already. Um, you know, we see the research getting advanced. In fact, there are two clinical trials happening in the U.S. right now that have breakthrough therapy designation uh, from the FDA uh, for MDMA and psilocybin. So not only is the research uh, moving forward, the FDA has actually indicated that it has preferential status, and we'll look at these studies first. Um, so the attitudes on even a political basis are changing. But then you also see uh, over the last month or so, the Minister of Health in Canada has granted, I think it's now 10 uh, exemptions. So people who are end of life and palliative care and facing uh, end of life distress and anxiety have been given access to psilocybin therapy as well. Uh, so it's happening. You see it in the media every day. It's hard to pick up uh, any media outlet that's not talking about psychedelics these days. You have documentaries coming forward. You have books like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. All of these things are happening. So I think, and, and I think cannabis has done a great job of paving the way and breaking down a lot of those once held strongly negative belief towards drugs and people are a lot more open-minded and when you look at the data and the evidence it's really hard to argue that psychedelics certainly have a place and a role in therapy going forward especially in light of the mental health challenge that crisis that we're going through globally right now which is only being exacerbated by the the pandemic. Uh, do you find it strange that we are once again looking at, to the United States that are moving on this, that are voting on this and taking measures ahead of Canada? Um, no, I don't find it entirely strange. I think what I've seen, at least in my personal experience, is that you see a lot of very forward-thinking states like California and Colorado and Oregon really driving agendas um, uh, that are very progressive on a state basis. I think what Canada is really good at is then taking out, taking those programs, taking the best of them, implementing them on a federal level, and then you'll see the rest of the U.S. catch up. And it's also a function, I think, of probably the progressive minds in some of those states, but also the political system where you can put ballot initiatives on this and really drive change at a grassroots level where there's not a similar infrastructure in the Canadian pol political regime that would enable this kind of change. You need more political buy-in as opposed to social buy-in. And so I think just those structure differentials make uh, advancing these progressive initiatives in the U.S. a little bit easier, at least in certain states. Uh, do you think this will have an impact on companies in Canada that provide or that make psychedelic drugs? 
Absolutely. I think it's a great opportunity. Certainly, it's a great opportunity for field trip. You know, in addition to the work we're doing with our field trip health centers uh, that are providing ketamine-assisted therapy in Toronto, New York, L.A., Chicago, and and future cities, um, we'll certainly be expanding to the state of Oregon to offer our ketamine-assisted therapy, but as soon as permitted, psilocybin-assisted therapy. And I think Canada is really positioned to to be a leader uh, in this industry broadly, um, based in part by the experience of cannabis and and the risk appetite and interest and I think open-mindedness of Canadian investors that are willing to get behind these initiatives. And then you see companies again like ours as well as um, Numinous, which is based in Vancouver, uh, that is doing incredible work. Both of us are doing incredible work uh, studying and the cultivation of psilocybin producing mushrooms. Uh, And so as soon as permitted, we'll be there. I expect Numinous will be there uh, to really establish the infrastructure for legally compliant safe cultivation of psilocybin producing mushrooms and and certainly we expect this to expand across the u.s uh, on a state-by-state basis there were a number of ballot initiatives that didn't move forward because of the pandemic this year but almost certainly will in 2022 and then like i said the, when i met the, the minister of health and the exemptions that have been granted in canada really position canada to be uh, a country that moves forward with a federally regulated program for access to psychedelics, I think much sooner than most people would expect. I wouldn't be surprised if you see this on political agendas uh, this year or next year uh, as well. So uh, I think it's a great opportunity for Can- Canadian companies you know, to be at the forefront of what is going to be a very significant global industry. All right, Ronan, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. It was good to talk with you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Global News at 2 o'clock. Good afternoon. I'm Erin Eubels. As Joe Biden clinches several states that may serve as his ticket to the White House, he's addressed Americans. Global News' Srishti Gangdev reports. Biden sounding confident, but still taking a very different tone from Trump's late night premature claim of victory. Biden says he's not here to declare victory until all the votes are counted, but says it is looking good, not just in terms of the electoral college votes that will ultimately secure the presidency, but in the popular vote as well. Indeed, Senator Harris and I are on track to win more votes than any ticket in the history of this country. Biden is predicting when all the votes are in, he will have the 270 electoral votes necessary to hand him the presidency. Sershi Gangdev, Global News. That is CNN uh, projects Democrat victories in battlegrounds Wisconsin and Michigan. All eyes now on states like Arizona and Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, U.S. President Donald Trump's campaign says it has filed a lawsuit trying to halt the vote count in battleground Michigan. Reporter Lionel Moisey has more. Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien in a statement writing, quote, President Trump's campaign has not been provided with meaningful access to numerous counting locations to observe the opening of ballots and the counting process as guaranteed by Michigan law. Adding that the campaign has filed suit to halt counting until access is granted, also demanding a review of ballots that were already opened and counted. Michigan is a key battleground state that helped deliver Trump the presidency four years ago, along with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Trump's campaign also says it's suing to temporarily stop the vote count in Pennsylvania, claiming lack of transparency. Parliamentarians are keeping a close eye on the ongoing counts in the presidential election as Canadian business leaders worry the lack of a clear winner is bringing more political and economic uncertainty for Canada. Conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev says that 
there is little Canada can do about the outcome of the presidential vote and should focus instead on federal spending and pandemic-related aid. I think we should focus on what we can control. Uh, the Americans have, have cast their ballots and they're doing their counting. They'll pick a president. We as Canadians have to work with whomever they choose. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole separately told reporters today that they are continuing to closely follow the ballot counts. In other news, the call to isolate school cohorts sooner rather than later has once again surfaced after news of super spreader events linked to youth activities in Chilliwack. Parent Coraline Gales says with the recent increase of exposures and cases in Chilliwack, those in the same cohort should isolate immediately instead of waiting for instructions from health officials, which can sometimes take days. And the second change that needs to be happened is that if a child is asked to self-isolate, any siblings they have who are also in school or daycare need to be self-isolating as well. BC's top doctor has stood by current school protocols, saying every situation is different. Despite rumours, Fraser Health says it's not seeing contact tracing delays of 7 to 10 days at this time. Exposure and positive cases have been linked to 13 schools in Chilliwack. Canada's two most populous provinces continue to register new daily COVID-19 cases near or over the 1,000 mark. Quebec is reporting 1,029 new cases today. On Ontario with 987 new cases. That's down from 1,050 yesterday. Meanwhile, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is defending his government's newly announced color-coded system for COVID-19 restrictions. The Premier was asked today to respond to criticism that the threshold to be deemed a red zone, the highest risk level before a lockdown is imposed, is too high. Ford says he believes the system will be effective in containing the spread of the virus. The province reporting, again, 900 87 new cases today. Parliament's budget watchdog is citing the Trudeau government for not providing information on billions of dollars in planned federal spending, including pandemic aid. The Parliamentary Budget Office made clear its concerns about the Liberal spending secrecy in two separate reports. Global news time is 2.04 and now the latest AM 7.30 traffic. Here is Trish Jewison. Good afternoon and good news over at the Massey Tunnel. Cleared the crash southbound at the north end. Unfortunately, though, still seeing some leftover volume on the approach just north of Steveston Highway. That Steveston on-ramp still has some extra congestion on there as well. Watch out for a crash in Coquitlam. Eastbound on Guilford after Falcon. Eastbound traffic is blocked by crews. Looks like there's a police incident in Vancouver on the boundary off-ramp from Highway 1 East. And traffic lights are still out in Vancouver at the intersection of Oak and 16th and Oak and Douglas Crescent. Make sure you use the four-way stop procedure. From cookbooks to cocktail sets, Indigo and Chapters have the perfect gifts for everyone on your list. Get same-day in-store pickup when you shop online at indigo.ca. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Trish Jewison. Global Sky Tracker weather, cloudy today with a 60% chance of showers this afternoon, highs of 14 degrees. Periods of rain ending late tonight, lows down to 10 and tomorrow, cloudy, 40% chance of showers through the morning, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. Highs to 11 degrees, sunny skies Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right through the weekend, highs of 7 to 9. In Agassiz, it's 15 degrees and cloudy. Outside CKNW at Pacific Centre, also 15 degrees degrees. And on the markets, the Dow Jones is up 367 points, TSX up 59, and the Canadian dollar, that is trading at 76.12 cents U.S. Global News Time 206. I'm Erin Eubels.
been taking a look at the vote in Oregon and talking about the vote that has to do with psychedelic drugs, such as psychedelic mushrooms and other types of drugs, including cocaine, heroin, oxycodone, methamphetamine, and reclassifying the offense of a certain amount of that with a civil violation or also making small amounts and use of these drugs in small amounts to decriminalize the small amounts. It's something that's been talked a lot about on this side of the border as well. So we wanted to talk to those who have been at the forefront of these discussions. And Mark Tyndall joins me now. Uh, Dr. Tyndall is a professor of medicine at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, also the founder of My Safe Project. Thanks so much for being with us again. Uh, thanks for asking me. Uh, what is your response to this vote in Oregon that does uh, decriminalize small amounts of these types of drugs? I think it's a, a great first step. So um, I'm not sure why it was in Oregon, but uh, I think the Drug Policy Alliance uh, group activists in uh, the U.S. really lobbied hard in Oregon and uh, tried to educate the public, and uh, they uh, got their uh, their order passed. It also legalizes psychedelic mushrooms to to a certain amount as well, which which I know a lot of people kind of look at that, wondering if that was even a big issue or if that is a big issue. Uh, is that uh, is that something that is significant? Well, um, I think there's been a lot of recent interest in the uh, medical utility of uh, mushrooms and uh, psilocybin. So uh, I think it's uh, it really didn't make any sense that it was uh, illegal to possess it. And uh, I think we'll find in the future, as more studies are done, that uh, it's very uh, it'll be a very useful uh, therapeutic. And going back to some of the other drugs, so this is Measure 110. So it's the only state now in the United States that has decriminalized those small amounts, talking about, again, things like cocaine, heroin, oxycodone, methamphetamine. Uh, It's a civil violation now, which comes with a $100 fine. But if somebody is caught with these drugs and agrees to participate in a health assessment or a program, they can waive the fee. Uh, Do you think, is a program like that, is that effective? Well, I think it's a first start. It's a start. I mean, I think that um, it never made any sense uh, laying criminal charges on people for possessing small amounts of these drugs for their personal use. Um, We've tried to make it uh, into a medical issue for a long time and not a criminal issue. So I think it's a great first step. I think the... uh, you know, the mechanism whereby you get a fine and are expected to show up in some kind of uh, treatment or help center is probably not uh, very useful. I think uh, the $100 fine, you know, if it was implemented in Vancouver, I think there'd just be a lot of people walking around with a pocket full of unpaid tickets. And I'm not sure what, um, you know, what we do with that and hopefully not further criminalize people for not paying their fines. (laughs) So would a system like this, a a shift like this, would this have, do you think, a positive outcome or a positive effect on the opioid crisis in Vancouver? Well, I think um, a major problem with uh, the way we deal with drug use now is to uh, punish and isolate people. And uh, part of that Isolation is because of uh, a stigma and unacceptance, and uh, part of that stigma is all based on criminalization. So I do think they're all connected, and if uh, we're trying to connect with people and open up to services, uh, 
it's counterintuitive to think that we're uh, sending police out after them to chase them around and uh, and arrest them. So I think that criminalization uh, really impacts on all the positive um, interventions that we're trying to do in a negative way. Uh, In the Oregon model, the selling and manufacturing of the drugs is still illegal. So when we look at what's happening here and we look at, unfortunately, so many people overdosing on what they think is one thing and it's laced with fentanyl or there are larger amounts of fentanyl in the drug, how how would that then perhaps fight the, the number of overdose deaths? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if tomorrow we uh, have the same laws in Vancouver where people were not arrested for their possession, um, it would not have a direct um, major effect on number of overdoses because the drug supply is so tainted that people are buying. So we really need to go towards a a more regulated way to uh, for people have access to this, obviously, to try to guide people, uh, you know, away from use in the first place and to try to give them other options than to be in, injecting these drugs. But clearly, in the situation we face now in Vancouver, we need to offer people uh, a safer um, source of these drugs because we just can't um, continue to watch people uh, buy poison and and die. And do you think is the solution even in the short term, is it is it that we offer a safe supply of alternate drugs or we decriminalize the drugs that people are using? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, the you know, there's the illegal supply of these drugs is uh, well entrenched and that's where people are used to getting them um, and they've become very dangerous for people. So I think as a society, we're pushed into a situation where we should offer people a safer supply of the drugs that they're they're seeking and try to replace the uh, illegal toxic market. How has the pandemic made things worse in that we, we are hearing, unfortunately, more stories of people who maybe were in treatment, had that support network, things were shut down. Uh, is that continuing to happen? I think so. I know a lot of uh, services uh, were heavily impacted at the start and have tried to make, uh, you know, modifications to their programs that they can still offer. But I think in the in the whole grand scheme of things, uh, services have been uh, cut back. I think that um, the isolation um, that people are, uh, you know, instructed to do and to stay indoors has been also a detriment because, uh People aren't, aren't out and about, and uh, more people are likely to be using by themselves and, uh, and overdosing. And the third uh, major impact has been the actual uh, deter- further deterioration in the, in the drug supply because these uh, drugs do cross borders and, uh, and travel through many hands. And uh, the more disrupted that supply chain is, the, uh, the worse off the uh, drug supply is. And how do you respond when whenever we talk about this, inevitably there is pushback with people saying, why would we decriminalize this? Isn't the main goal to help people, to get people into treatment or to rehabilitation so that they're not dependent on these drugs? Well, I I think we can all agree on that, but it's where the starting point is. And if your first contact with somebody is a police officer and a jail cell, that is not uh, a good way to uh, go about trying to engage people to help them with their health. And so I really think we need a whole other approach. And uh, decriminalization would be an excellent first step to try to uh, 
allow people to engage in programs that uh, that can help them and and housing and other social supports that they uh, so desperately need. And as long as we throw a uh, you know, a black drape of criminalization over the whole community. It, it really does uh, affect all the other activities that we're trying to do. And not that we take our cues or follow what uh, the United States does as far as drug policy here, but the United States did uh, legalize or, or decriminalize marijuana before Canada did. Do you think that this might open the door or show if the if the states start going in this direction, might there be uh, more of a push or an argument for Canada to try this too? I do. No, I think uh, as a advocate for for drug policy change. Uh, now I'll have another um, um, another example that I can turn to where you know even Oregon is doing this. So I, I do think that it's a uh, it's very helpful as far as leverage for what we could possibly do in Canada. And as you can see, um, making a switch like that is basically just uh, signing a document. It's just legislation. It doesn't mean we have to you know do a, a lot of uh, training or set up programs or it's just basically saying that uh, it's no longer on that we can uh, take people aside, find they have some small quantities of drugs and then arrest them. And uh, that really needs to be uh, taken out of our approach to uh, a drug use and addiction. All right, Dr. Tindall, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Mark Tyndall, a professor of medicine at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, also founder of My Safe Project. Let's take a short break and it's time to get you caught up in your afternoon traffic and much more on what is happening in the United States. Updates on the various counts that so will keep you right up to date on that. Stick with us here on CKNW.